This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Jacob Emerson. Jacob's our leader in covering payers and issues going to payers and insurance. Jacob, thank you for joining us today. Take a moment and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what are the most interesting stories that you're watching involving payers currently and, and what's the landscape you're watching? Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me on, Scott. Um, so I, I thought I would, we could start today by talking about an issue that obviously is affecting every single facet of healthcare, of, of every industry right now, and it's staffing issues. Um, but an interesting story that's really caught my eye, or trend, I should say, is um, payers trying to reverse this trend around their health IT professionals. So, you know, the context here is payers nowadays, they're major tech companies as well. They're all data-driven. They need a solid set of health IT professionals in every aspect of their corporate structure. But it's just a fact as well, and our health IT teams report on this all the time, that this talent doesn't exist on the same level as it once did, or, or you're competing on a different level. You're competing globally now for these professionals. So we're starting to see payers turn inward to begin fostering this talent in-house, and a lot are partnering with their local universities or wherever they're headquartered to start degree training and workforce programs for IT professionals. And what does that look like over the long run? I mean, can't the big payers outsource a lot of stuff throughout the rest of the world on the tech side, or is there not enough that the ability to do that? What does some of this look like as you, as you watch this landscape? Sure, absolutely. And you're correct. They're absolutely, just like anyone else, they are outsourcing talent to all over the world. Um, but but the flip side here is that it is, you know, it's very beneficial to have uh, employees either on the ground or available immediately near you if they need to be there in person. Um, so so here's two examples we, we've seen recently come to fruition. Blue Cross the Shield of Nebraska, they had their first class of graduates graduate this past October. And they partnered with a local university there in, in Nebraska on, on the workforce training program. They got about six to 12 months of free training at the university and at BCBS. Um, and then Blue Cross extends an offer of employment to graduates as soon as they uh, complete that program. Another one that's coming to fruition right now is at BCBS Tennessee. They have something called the Blue Sky Tennessee Institute. Same, same idea college degree and training program. Uh, they had their first class of 32 students, which just graduated. They had a 100% retention rate, and they doubled their, their next class in terms of enrollment. So it's clearly a popular um, idea of, of getting these students who are enrolled in local colleges on fast track directly into employment at a, at a, at a Blue Cross or, or other payers. So, so helpful and such a great concept. Can health systems do anything similar, whether in the tech world, the nursing world? What is even the big health system perspective? Obviously, they can't produce doctors that quickly, but can they help fill some of these other gaps that are so critical to care providing? What are you seeing out there? Are you seeing any observations or any thoughts on that, Jacob? Yeah, no, that's a really good, uh, that's a good point. And to, to your point, Scott, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to train somebody in health IT compared to being, you know, the years and years that it takes to become a physician. So obviously we're talking about two different issues there with clinician pipelines versus more um, in-office or, or health IT talent. Obviously, I don't cover health systems as much as some of the other reporters here at Becker's, but I do know that we are seeing some health systems um, really start to invest in this uh, problem. Um, a lot of them, you know, do invest directly into nursing programs and schools. 
but then we've seen Kaiser Permanente will, is uh, investing in his own medical school in California. So uh, health systems are definitely interested in similar. But like I said, payers, it, I think sometimes it can be easier for them to go directly to their local um, academic institutions, set up the program, and shuttle uh, talent right in. Thank you. Another issue on the payer side, I'd love to get your comments on. I saw this morning that Cigna's stock price is now at a 52-week high. And so you've got some of these big insurance companies. Cigna's doing $180 billion a year in revenues. Uh, so some of these huge insurance companies, the big four are some of the 20 largest companies in America. And at the same time, health systems are struggling so much. Any discussion there? What do you hear there between this? this distinction between how peers are doing versus how health systems are doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously this is a conversation I think that is happening across the industry and it, it's, it's easy, I think, to point the blame at payers. Um, that they, at least on paper, they're not struggling financially right this given second. Um, so, you know, and, and maybe they're villainized, I think, more in the public eye as well. So again, it's easy to point the finger at them. but. What I do think is really important to remember in this tango, I think that you could call it between payer and provider contracts, and obviously it's, it's a pretty tense situation right now with the current financial environment, but what's really important to remember is that these contracts, they typically arise every three to five years. So some, you know, a lot of the times the financial issues in a given year, those won't appear in contract issues or debates or negotiations until years later um, with the payer specifically. So, um, you, know, you have to. You also have to remember that insurers they can they can adjust premiums every year to, to move up and down with where where they want to meet um, profits and revenues. But eventually, there are things that will cut into their profits. Inflation certainly will. Um, they're all facing lower CMS star ratings from the pandemic and quality ratings that are tied to monetary reimbursements from the government. Um, and then the, these loss, the loss of providers and their networks um, through these contract fights. They'll all eventually show up on earnings reports. They're just, they're on a different financial schedule than hospitals are. Thank you very, very much. And so, so you know, I, I'm, of course, like decades older than you are. And in, in the old days, I thought the payers were okay. And, and they still are, of course. And now it seems like I, I've come to that more jaundiced, skeptical viewpoint. And you would think as one is... Um, older they become more accepting of sort of big business and how profitable they are and when you're younger you're more adamantly against them you're a much younger person than me how did we get our roles reversed where i see the payers as the villain and you're a little bit more a little bit more even-handed in your perspective well and again i think Scott, that goes back to in the, the public perception is that payers are the bad guys and i think anybody who isn't um writing about or researching this industry day in and day out is going to think that um, because no one interacts with their insurance company in a uh, positive way, if, rarely, I should say. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, but the, the thing to remember, too, is that commercial insurance especially operates on razor thin margins. It, you know, when your entire business is literally paying out money, it, it can be difficult to turn a profit. So it's, it's a very difficult business. It's, it comes down to um, so I would, so that's what I would say. No, a hundred percent. No, I think that's a great perspective, Jacob. Thank you so much. It's, it's, um, it's just so interesting for, for me to hear who's, who's, who just the, the different perspectives on it, the coverage perspectives on it. And, 
and, and again, I, I just find it fascinating. I've seen over the course of the last several years, payers have the strongest lobbyists in the world. And as they've, they've done, you know, the sky has always been falling from a payer perspective, yet they continue to mint money. And from a provider perspective, the health system perspective, I do see it as a more challenging time than it's ever been with sort of reimbursement kind of flat and inflation raging. And the payers just seem to be much better to adapt to the environment for a lot of different reasons. I mean, they're, they're ultimately a huge amount of government business, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid flows through the payers. That's become a very profitable business, as has a lot of the other insurance businesses. It's fascinating to watch. Jacob, anything else you'd love to share with us today? Uh, and again, thank you. Anything else to share with us today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one last quick issue, I think, that is we're just constantly, it's a trend we're, we're watching constantly develop is provider networks from payers. It's the behavioral and mental healthcare networks are just growing like crazy. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, obviously since the pandemic began, the demand for these services has really risen like uh, like we've never seen. And so we're seeing pretty much every major insurance company uh, expand behavioral and mental healthcare networks. And I know sometimes they are used interchangeably, um, but in terms of just behavioral, United Health Group has grown theirs 25% since 2020. They've got 375,000 providers in their network now. Cigna's at 250,000. Um, even the blues, individual blues plants, which are obviously much smaller individual companies. BCBS Massachusetts was saying just the other day they've had mental health healthcare visits double since 2019. So it's a massive trend to to keep an eye on across healthcare, of course, but behavioral and mental is one of the top trends to watch. And, and it really is. The behavioral and mental health area really is like a second pandemic out there, isn't it? Right. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Because, I mean, we know just from watching certain strikes around the country at, at other health systems, there just isn't enough providers to meet this demand. There's not enough of the actual clinicians themselves, and there's not enough of the, the organizations to meet this demand. So it, it, the industry is, is rapidly expanding as fast as possible, but it is just true at the end of the day that there's just way more people that need this care than, than is available. Jacob, thank you as always for visiting with us. You've got one of the most brilliant balanced viewpoints. I love getting a chance to visit with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Scott.